Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I believe the Palestinians and Israelis equally deserve to live safely and securely and to enjoy equal measures of freedom, prosperity, and democracy. My administration will continue our quiet and relentless diplomacy toward that end. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Severi. Nicholas, my friend, uh, how's everything going on your side? It's going well. It's hot, man. It is. Man, it's hot. We are approaching Mor- Memorial Day. I can't, I can't even say that. Memorial Day. <laughs> Memorial Day, ladies and gentlemen. Memorial yeah. Day. How you doing? Everything's good, man. Everything's going well. Um, obviously, a lot of things are going on in the news. We're going to get into a bunch of that. Our topic for today um, is a heavy one. We talked about it last week when we had Sabrina Rodriguez on talking about the border. We talked about what we're going to talk about this week with the Israel-Palestine conflict. We just played the President Biden clip at the top. Next week's another heavy topic. But at the top, real quick, I just wanted to get into something. Uh, first off, I want to thank all the thousands of listeners that are out there that are subscribed to the podcast, listen to the podcast, write into us. Obviously, check it out wherever you get your podcast. Um, follow us, IG, TikTok, Twitter at Can We Please Talk Podcast. Uh, we really appreciate. It. We want to continue the conversation. You can email us as well. Can We Please Talk Podcast at Yahoo.com. If you have a recommended topic, if you want to just get something off your chest about the topics that we're discussing, because you know some of them move the the needle. And tonight, you know, today's excuse me is going to be no different. But uh, real quick, I wanted to get into. You know, having a back and forth with with people, uh, not only on social media, Nick, you know this because you and I text uh, about this. Some of the comments that we have gotten from recent episodes, you know, when we did the read the room segment about Joe Rogan, when we've done 
you know, things on the immigration at the border, I, you know, our, our goal with all of this, obviously you're sparking dialogue and conversation, but folks, there has to be a, a factual point that's met here. We have to start at a fact. And that's why Nick and I started this show, my years in television. And Nick is also a Connecticut school broadcasting graduate, you know, in radio. So we wanted to bring some, some essence of ourselves onto this podcast, but then, you know, blend it with the truth, not your fact, not my fact, not Nick's fact, a fact. So we vet our guests that come on the program, right? We vet the information that we're giving out to the public because we could easily, we've said this a bunch of times, we can name this the America's First podcast. We could throw out a bunch of words out here that, that have all the buzz points, you know, the, the liberties, the freedoms. Uh, Nick and I would get millions of downloads. We both quit our jobs, but it's disingenuous. You know, it's disingenuous. We don't feel like that. And I've worked with people that are doing that right now that don't feel like that. And that's the difference, folks. I know where those people are coming from because I've worked for one of them, one of the big ones. So um, if you have that kind of feeling and emotion that you feel like you need somebody to placate to your emotions and sensitivities, uh, Dan Bogino, Ben Shapiro, they're, they're up the street, down the road. You can head over to those podcasts. I wanted to get that out of the way because, you know, you and I have gone back and forth, not about the show, but about the comments we're getting about the show. And I think it's it's funny. And this topic today is going to be another one that I think is, you know, a lot of people are going to, you know, have that same level of vitriol on both sides of this when it's really a humanitarian issue. Um, so I wanted to start with that at the top. Nick, I know you had a couple of thoughts on this. So hit me with it. Yeah, I mean, real quick. You know, this is a show that when when I describe it to to friends of mine, and I've gotten now a lot more people noticing the show and how do we get into it? And how could they get into it? Which is this idea about sparking conversation. Um, the way I frame the show is that we do it from a place of of curiosity. We don't have people on this show that aren't are not experts in their field. You know, if I'm thinking about matters not just at the border, but when we think about journalism, Sabrina is a name that's that's high on my list. Um, you know, when I think about the realities of working, you know, in front of the camera, behind the camera, in news media, Michael, you're a person that I'm, you know, I like talking to about that. You know, as an author, we think of people like Jeff Perlman. I mean, I'm not going to run down the people that we've had on this show. We've been very blessed to have these people there, but they are legitimate voices in their field. You know, we we do not provide a space to simply blow hot air to give hot, hot takes to Michael's point. Um, why do I keep saying Michael? Mike. Yeah, I, I kind of <laughs> caught on that too, but I was going to let you keep going. because uh, But yeah, no, but the, I mean, yeah, we're not. We're not in that hot take. We're not in the hot take business. This isn't, this isn't hot speak. No. Like this ain't, this ain't no. And and we're not PTI. We're not, you know, first take, cold pizza, whatever the hell they're calling the show these days. If you want all that, there's tons of space on the podcast world or on television for that. If you're looking for an in, informed discussion, an opportunity to, to learn, I'm going to stress that here, to learn from someone who knows what the hell they're talking about, then this is the show for you. You know, our goal is to come at it, come at this from a place of curiosity, come at it from a place of wanting to learn more. This topic is based on that idea of there's a lot going on and there's a lot emotionally to process here. But let's stick with the facts for a moment. And that's really and that's that's what we're all about here. We're based on data. We're based on expertise. We're based on trying to take, try, not trying to, but taking the emotion out of it and having an informed conversation. 
And and what we're excited about is those who join us and the feedback that we get from friends of ours usually soaked in that it's coming from a place of, I can't believe you had Eric Foner on your show, like things like that. Right. At some point, and the reason why, you know, I had reached out to you last summer when we conceptualized this show and talked about how we wanted to do this and how I wanted to build it like other shows that I've produced in television that still live in existence uh, out there in the space. It's, it's you know, uh, we're, we build it like a show. We pre-tape. Obviously, we have our guests come on and then we wrap with, a you know, a post-wrap. The goal is not for you and I to sit here for 45 minutes and give our opinions on stuff that we may not be knowledgeable about, knowledgeable about, excuse me, just like today's topic, which I have very limited knowledge on. You probably, maybe a little bit more. Last week's was a little bit personal to me as a son of an immigrant, but again, I need an immigration reporter from a from political, a, a very popular, trustworthy uh, news publication source. Um, to come out here and somebody who's traveled to the border. We had Jessica Coggins on as well, even though, uh, you know, her paper is more progressive leaning. But regardless of that, people that are on the ground day to day working in the subject matter in the field that can lend expertise, right? Again, if you want somebody to stoke your ego or feed in or hit the key buzzwords that everybody's using nowadays, there's other podcasts for that. You can go check those out. The same and, and, right. And those will continue to fester any emotions that you have one way or the other. That's not what this is about. I ain't trying to do that shit. When we had Mike Emanuel on, we talked about it specifically, right? Here's a Fox News guy that does the news of the day, talking to lawmakers, talking. He's on the news side of the house because why? Fox will get sued into oblivion if they were just all hot takes and making up garbage. He's the one that brings the actual news. You need people like that. On that. Unfortunately, whether or not you know, that should be like that is up for a debate. But like you said on the episode, networks operate like that, right? They have the opinion side of the house, and then they have their news side of the house, breaking news, whatever it is, from the news and sports world. So we are not operating on the opinion side. You're not getting... Nick and I will occasionally you know, discuss our thoughts about what we just discussed with the interviewer, uh, the interviewee, excuse me. So we'll wrap like that and we'll discuss that. And then we'll try to give some factual context around what we're going to be discussing. But at the end of the day, it's not for you guys, you guys and gals out there to hear Nick and I's opinion, because who the hell are we, right? Well, that's why we have somebody else on that's educated in that space. You never worked in government? Yeah, me neither. Neither did Nick. But how about Reggie Love come on and tell you what it's like to work you know, for the 44th president of the United States. Like, so there's things like that, that we, that we try to do around the show. And I felt like it was important to kind of start with that at the top, because I appreciate all the feedback uh, that Nick and I have been getting. It's not family and friends anymore. Now it's gone and blown over in the social comments and emails that we get from fans and things like that. So we appreciate it. But again, I want you to keep staying here because you want to learn about a new topic. You want to learn about something that you didn't know. It's not to give you another perspective on something. Everybody's throwing out their own perspectives. It's really to give you the information and then talk to somebody that's actually going through it. So it's a perfect segue for our topic today, because this is a pretty heavy topic. What's happening in in Israel right now with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and, and Hamas firing rockets into Israel and Israel responding back and and how this all started is something that Nick and I are not going to offer an opinion on. We don't want that. I have no, like I have no dog in this fight for lack of a better term, because I think that term's terrible. Um, There's, there's people and kids dying. 
daily over this. Um, it's an extremely sensitive topic. Just to give you context, we asked a war correspondent to come on the program. Um, he declined. And this person's been in Syria, in Israel, uh, in other war-torn countries. And we wanted him to talk really about this subject matter and really educate us. And he declined because he said of the sensitivities around it, that he just, he would rather go back there than come on a show and talk. That to me speaks of don't touch that subject, right? But we want to take it from the lens of like what we just talked about, the education part of it. So we have a noted history professor from the Hackley School. Jared Fishman is going to be joining us today. Now, Jared's got a unique story because not only is Jared, you know, educated uh, in history and also teaching it at the high school level at a, at a very prominent school in New York, but has taken educational trips with uh, students to Israel, to the Gaza Strip. He has seen some of this stuff firsthand and has told us stories off air about what happened uh, in Gaza. And some of it is really eye-opening, but we want him to come on to explain the historical context of what's, what's going on, what led up to this current conflict, and, and really his experiences traveling to the region. Uh, we thought it was important to really talk about this because obviously this is making news. You heard President Biden's comments at the top, um, and it's a sensitive subject, you know, and um, I don't know uh, what can be done. I hope for peace. We all pray for peace, but um, there's some there's some issues at the core, obviously, on both sides of this. And Jared's really going to give us, you know, the, the 36,000 uh, foot view so we can really understand it and digest it. So with that, Nick, what do you what do you make of what's happening over there in Israel right now? What it's all meaning to me is about it's it's tragedy. Um, you know, there's a I'm not going to get into you know, what side this person fell into it. But there's a really powerful video on the internet right now of a 10-year-old girl you know, talking about her experience there. And she's talking about this from being in a bombed out place. And she's just, you know, is exclaiming, I'm 10. Like, what do I do with yeah. this? I'm always sick. I'm always, I don't know. I can't do anything. You all of this. What, what do you expect me to do? Fix it? I'm only 10. I can't even deal with anything in this world. I just want to be a doctor or anything to help my people, but I can't. I'm just a kid. I don't even know what to do. You know, Mike, my, my oldest kid is six years old, you know, four years for, removed from that. And, you know, their life trajectory is going to go in two totally different places simply by the good fortune of where my daughter was born, and which is also to say where I was born. And, and she's the person that comes to mind. And, and again, it's not about what side she falls into, but we're talking about children. We're talking about people just trying to live their lives and uh, basically victims of, of attacks. You know, we saw recently the the bombing of a, of a building that housed the AP and other outlets. Um, you know, we were seeing violence just blown apart or happening all over that territory. Uh, and regardless of where your political leanings are and what side you're being sympathetic towards, at the end of the day, we're seeing an outbreak of violence and we need to understand why and we need to understand what are the opportunities to potentially rebuild and to be able to move and move on as, as you know, Biden had, as the president spoke a moment ago. Um, that's what matters here. Um, you know, getting into that. And I've seen, you know, I'm part of different text groups and seeing people really emotionally connecting to this. Um, and that's, that's not the place for it. 
you know, the places to understand how we arrived here. And I'm excited to have a conversation with someone to really just kind of bring us up to speed with what are the origins of this conflict and, and what makes this conflict potentially this recent situation stand out from prior events? Um, or is this part of a, an ongoing narrative? So I, again, as always, I come at it from a place of curiosity, but especially right now, thinking of that little girl and thinking of the, the thousands of people who are fearing for their lives and just understanding what in the hell is going on and, and what is the, how do we, how do we move past this? Yeah, no, it's very well said. That's, that's the place that we want to bring it from. And uh, we're excited that Jared was able to join us on the program today. Nick, a quick word from our sponsor, Real Sleep. You know, the pandemic has had a tremendous impact on sleep insomnia, and anxiety. If you are suffering from sleep issues like half the world is, well, our sponsor, Real Sleep, has developed the world's first personalized sleep solution customized to you. Nick, um, how many hours of sleep you get in there, buddy? Probably about like five or six. I know I know, I know anymore. I just, I work late <laughs> sometimes when the kids gets me up, man. It's uneven. Yeah. You know, I, I, the copy's telling me to add a story around trouble sleeping. I always have trouble sleeping. I mean, I drink a cup of coffee before I go to bed. So that could be why, but, um, sleeping for me, you know, we just moved back from Miami to New York city. So you go from a city where you don't really have, at least where I was living in Miami, not a lot of noise outside now, noise everywhere, you know, in New York city. So I got trouble sleeping. So I'm all in on this sponsor, real sleep, because unlike prescription and over-the-counter sleep aids, they got a plant-based formula that works with your body to get you to sleep faster, help you sleep deeper, and cut down on sleep disturbances. You can even hear the, the sirens that are outside of my house right now. So while sleep is solitaire, folks, you are not alone, and Real Sleep is here to help. That's why we're teaming up with them, give you 20% off your next purchase. Nick, you writing this down, 20% off your next am, purchase. Okay, so all you got to do, whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on, go to the show notes page, click on the link that's in there, and use the promo code POD at checkout, and you'll see why Real Sleep is the last sleep product you'll ever need. All right, like we mentioned at the top, um, the subject today is, is very heavy, and we wanted somebody to give us not only a historical context of, of what's going on in Israel and Palestine, um, but also somebody who's traveled to the region. That's history teacher over at the Hackley School, Jared Fishman, one of my oldest friends from high school. Jared, Mike, and Nick, thanks for hopping on the podcast with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Uh, really proud of you in terms of uh, everything you've been able to accomplish so far. So it's a real honor to come on. Well, Thank I appreciate you. that. I mean, that's that's going somewhere in the soundbite library for Nick and I. Um, so thank you. Uh, Jared, let's, let's get right into it because, you know, there's a lot of people out there Specifically, our audience may not be as well-versed in Middle East relations. Uh, I will take myself as the example here. I'm not as well-versed in what's actually happening in the conflict. Not, not the most recent in how this flare-up started, but um, why don't you take our audience a little bit through the context of what's happening right now with Israel and Palestine and what actually escalated to where we are today? Sure, you got it. Um, and again, I, I think you intro this really well. It is a really, really heavy topic and uh, it's very polarizing. Um, so I'm going to do my best uh, to really kind of give both sides so that your listeners will have a sense of what the facts are. So um, I guess we should start by talking about the Gaza Strip itself. Um, and let's think about, you know, uh, who's actually fighting in this conflict. So on one side, you have the state of Israel. Um, you have the IDF, which is their uh, armed forces. 
And on the other side of the coin, you have um, a group called Hamas. And Hamas was elected to political office in 2006 um, to represent um, Palestinians in the region. But I also want to point out that they're also very controversial, right? People in the Middle East, especially Arabic nations, tend to look at Hamas almost as like as freedom fighters, whereas Western nations consider them to be a terrorist organization. So just as an example, you know, they were legitimately elected in 2006 to a majority in what's called the, uh, the Palestinian Authority. But their biggest rival, a group called Fatah, um, there was a civil war in 2007 between these two groups and um, Hamas basically executed most of the uh, key figures in Fatah and basically took over. So for a lot of Palestinians, you know, whether they want Hamas or not, um, Hamas has been here to stay for quite a long time. So um, in terms of the conflict itself, it's a very, um, what I would call a very limited war. And all of the wars that have been fought, I would say over the last 20 years uh, involving Gaza and involving the West Bank are, if you wanna think of like Clausewitzian theory, who was a military theorist in the 1800s, it's very limited because if you notice like both sides, they're not necessarily necessarily looking at this to as total war. They're not sending ground troops in. Um, they're using limited means to accomplish their political goals. So um, if we look at the Israelis, let's start with them. Um, what is sort of their goal in this fighting? So their goal right now, um, and this has been going on for 10 days, um, their goal is to destroy the military capability of Hamas. So what they're basically targeting in the Gaza Strip um, is essentially military infrastructure. So that includes these rocket launchers that Hamas uses. They're a little bit like Katusha rockets from uh, World War II that the Soviets used. Essentially, they're homemade, um, you know, out of materials that you could find in the Gaza Strip. Some of them are foreign bought, but it's very difficult for Hamas to get those in for a variety of reasons. Um, so the Israelis are targeting those rocket launchers and they're targeting these underground tunnels that Hamas built after the last war in 2014. So they use these tunnels, which are right underneath the Gaza Strip to basically move materials um, and to really do things outside of observation uh, range of the Israelis. They also use it as like a communication network. So um, it's a very difficult military campaign for the Israelis to fight because, and again, it's very controversial, but um, Hamas purposely uh, puts uh, this military infrastructure very close to where people live. Now on some level, it, it can't be avoided because of the fact that the Gaza Strip is something like the third most populated, densely populated uh, region in the entire world. And it's very small in a lot of ways. But that said, um, Hamas has uh, regularly been accused of essentially putting a lot of their civilians that they represent in harm's way. Um, and what the Israelis will tend to do, um, which by the way, has been talked about by um, tons of people uh, you know, in the media right now, um, what the Israelis will do is they will literally call Hamas's leadership and tell them, we are going to blow this building up because you have X, Y, and Z there. Um, and the Israelis will give them about an hour to get uh, innocent people out of that area. Um, and I know how strange that sounds, you know, when you're thinking about what a, how wars are fought, but that's basically what, um, you know, the Israelis will, will tend to do. Um, and by the way, just to, you know, really be clear here, 
the Israelis don't really make very many bones about this. I mean, they will they will be very open about the fact that they know that there will be collateral damage no matter how precise their, their bombings are. So just as an example, they've flown 1,800 sorties in 10 days. Um, and uh, they've killed a couple of hundred civilians along with a couple of hundred members of Hamas. Um, they are very open about the fact that this is going to come with the territory, which is a very like cold thing, which is why the Israelis get so much heat in the media to the point where a lot of um, you know people in the media and a lot of nations, um, uh, including you know politicians in our own country here in the United States, you know, will accuse the you know Israelis of almost like war crimes. Okay. Now let's talk about Hamas for a moment. Now let's talk about Hamas's military goals right now. So for Hamas, they're fighting a much more, what military historians would call a much more asymmetrical war. Um, if you think about Gaza, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, um, but if you think about where Gaza is located, um, it's basically surrounded. Um, it's surrounded by a lot of infrastructure that the Israelis have built. Um, they do not have access to the sea because of a blockade. Um, and something that doesn't often get talked about, even the Egyptians um, on the southern part of Gaza, um, they have also sealed that area off to kind of prevent people from leaving. So the kind of position that puts Hamas in is a lot like a lot of other powers um, that you might think about when studying uh, guerrilla warfare and things like that. So whether you're talking about uh, North Vietnam during the, uh, you know, the Vietnam conflict, um, uh, the Taliban fighting in uh, Afghanistan. The bottom line is Hamas cannot compete militarily with Israel. They just don't have the military capability to do it. So what they do is they fight very much for political reasons. It's not about attacking Israeli tanks or attacking um, Israeli aircraft. It's more about what kind of damage can we do to the Israelis psychologically to get them to stop bombing us. And how do we turn um, popular opinion against Israel? So as an example, um, Hamas uses primarily these rockets, these homemade rockets, and they'll fire off hundreds of them um, in, in different salvos. These are almost like a fire and forget weapons, meaning you're just sort of pointing it in a direction and hoping that it hits the target. They're not particularly accurate, um, but they are psychologically uh, pretty scary for people. Um, thing is, is that Israeli ha Israel has a system called the Iron Dome defense, which is a little bit like if you remember in the early 90s when the United States invaded Iraq, um, we had those Patriot missiles, which would shoot scuds down. The media loved to talk about those things. Um, essentially, that's what the Iron Dome defense system does. So nine out of every 10 rockets get shot down. But for the ones that do land, you know, they do kill people, they do destroy things. But it's not really comparable to the kind of damage that um, you know the Israelis are doing. So again, like, why are they doing this? Because they essentially want to uh, drive public opinion against Israel. They want to build more empathy uh, and sympathy for the their constituents, right, in Gaza and in the West Bank. Um, and again, they almost uh, use uh, some of the things that sort of go on to show how disproportionate things are to almost sort of you know present themselves as like the weaker group and the Israelis is a stronger group and then use that as a way to achieve their political goals, which are, which is to get Palestinians a home of their own, where they do not have to worry about the Israelis telling them what to do all the time. Just going through that, just that last part. And, and Jared, I, I commend you because, you know, over the last few minutes, as you've just broken that, this down, 
you know, doing so from just a place really down the middle. I feel a ton more educated on this topic and I'm, and I'm grateful uh, for you doing so. Um, you know, when you talk about political aims, the idea of a, if I heard you correctly, where you were just ending the concept of a Palestinian nation, is that where you were getting at? Absolutely. Yeah. So historically, where have we been with the, the opportunity for that to happen? Have we been closer than we've been before? Cause I'm thinking about, um, figures like Yasser Arafat, previous prime ministers of is in Israel, um, you know, where we were when Carter was president, like just historically, you know, this idea of the amorphous Palestinian state trying to further solidify where, where do you see, where do you see that situation as it, as it exists now? Well, I think what we, I, in order to answer that, I think we should probably look at the context, right? Um, mm. Think a little bit about, um, you know, what are the roots of this? And I think we can get to, um, you know, a, you know, hopefully an answer to that question. So I think what we should do is let's, let's go really, you know, pretty far back in time. Let's go back to uh, the 1800s. So Zionism, right? Let's start by talking about the Jews, right? Um, Zionism was this concept, which is still around today, but really had developed in the later part of the 1800s. Um, and it was this idea that, um, you know, the Jewish people did not have a homeland, um, really dating all the way back to the Roman destruction of their temple in Jerusalem. And, you know, for so long, uh, Jews kind of went from place to place. And the kind of anti-Semitism that they uh, faced led them to being thrown out of different nations um, and really, you know, forced them to sort of move around. So in the late 1800s, um, the uh, Jewish people, what they started to do is they started to buy up land in Palestine. And that's how we can kind of get into talking about Palestinians now. So um, when we talk about Palestine, we're really talking about the Holy Land. We're talking about the Levant. We're talking about um, uh, the area where um, Israel and even parts of like Lebanon and parts of Syria, parts of Jordan are today. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Palestinian people lived there. Um, I, I would say um, if we, again, take a look at the late 1800s when Jews started buying up land, the nation or the empire that ruled over that land, and they did so in a very indirect way, was the Ottoman Empire, which had been born essentially in the 14 and 1500s, and they rose to power. And they were uh, a little bit like the Romans, actually, they ruled very indirectly. So the Palestinians uh, that were living uh, in this land, in their land, you know, um, though the Jews would argue against that, right? Um, they were very sort of loosely tied together. Um, and when the Jews bought that land up, what ended up happening is now you have these two sort of groups of people, you know, trying to coexist. And interestingly enough, and this is what makes the story really sad, actually, um, they got along pretty well. There were obviously incidents here and there, um, you know, fighting between the two groups. But um, if you really break it down, Jews and Muslims have an enormous amount of um, overlap with one another, especially when it comes to religion. You know, Muslims call the Jews the people of the book, right? Um, so many, uh, you know, important figures in the Quran uh, come from Judaic uh, Christian tradition, you know? So, Things get murky for both the Jews and the Palestinians right around World War I. So right around World War I, what ends up happening in this region is um, during the fighting, the British, right, uh, conquer much of the Middle East. And this sense of 
what to do with these conquered lands. And it's not just the Middle East, it's parts of Africa um, and it's many other places uh, in the world at this time. What the British had to figure out is we know that we don't want to keep this territory. We know we don't want to administer it forever. And we have to figure out a way to essentially return, um, you know, governance of this land to the people that live in the region. However, um, you've got Jews now in this region. And on top of that, in 1917, the Zionist movement, um, which had a lot of powerful lobbying groups, um, had basically convinced the British to essentially uh, state something called the uh, Balfour uh, Doctrine or the Balfour Act. And what that basically guaranteed is a Jewish home, you know, for the first time in about 2000 years was going to be created right alongside where the Palestinians were going to live. And right there, you know, you have a tinderbox. And by the way, um, this happened many times in this time period. If you think about um, India and the partition of India, if you think about what happened in Rwanda, um, many other African states, uh, this is kind of the situation where you have these tenuous groups that are living next, next to one another and all of a sudden the Europeans are going to kind of wash their hands and be like, all right, we're out. So uh, after World War I, you know, this mandate system that was created by the League of Nations kind of, you know, you know kicks into gear. And then to make matters even more dire, you have the Holocaust during World War II. And what you have is hundreds of thousands of Jewish survivors that had essentially fled Europe and other parts of the world, and they went right to uh, the, the Middle East, right to where Israel would be. So to make a long story short, where you sort of end up in 1947 after World War II is over is the British mandate ends up uh, running out. And what that means is they had essentially set aside land for the Israeli Jews, they set aside land for the Palestinians. They set aside land um, called Transjordan, which is where um, essentially Syria and Jordan are today. And they more or less drew lines on the map, you know, just like, you know, had been done in Africa um, uh, and, and other places in the world at this time. They draw these lines. They also declared Jerusalem, which is the pivotal city in the region, to be kind of an open city. They, the British intention was to allow anybody to go into uh, the city of Jerusalem to worship and to see the sites. And almost immediately upon the British mandate being over, you end up with war. Jared, um, I want to get into, because uh, obviously I mentioned before you hopped on the program about your travels to the region and, and that you've taken uh, some students there. But let's get into um, your last time that you took a trip there. You were telling Nick and I this uh, off air uh, in text messages, sending us photos of things that you saw there. So why don't you take us a little bit inside what you saw when you traveled there? Give us a little bit of background and context of uh, what you saw when you traveled to the region. Sure. Um, you know, I can tell you, you know, a few things to start. So um, I'm very lucky where I work, uh, very privileged in a lot of ways. Um, we have a fund uh, devoted to international travel to take our students places so that they can um, not just necessarily look at books and look at the media to, to understand uh, the way the world works, but rather to see it. So we uh, took a number of students um, to the region and I can tell you, um, you know, firsthand, uh, it's, it is really one of the most memorable trips I've ever taken. Um, the country of Israel, Israel is a beautiful place. Um, 
one of the coolest things about the trip was it was an educational trip designed to kind of do exactly what you guys are trying to do here with this podcast, which is to kind of educate people, not just about like why Israel is right or why Hamas is wrong or, uh, you know, why the Palestinians might be right or wrong. It was more about learning everything one could about the people and the region and trying to come to some conclusions on your own. That's really what the nature of the trip was. So what was really cool about it was um, our guides, the people that kind of took us around, um, and we went all over the country. Um, they were a mix of uh, Palestinians from the West Bank. And the West Bank is, um, and again, we might get into this a little bit later, the West Bank is basically where Jerusalem is. And the West Bank um, is essentially occupied territory. And again, it could take a really long time to explain what that means, but in short, um, these were lands that were controlled, that were lived in by Palestinians, right? And had been, had been basically controlled by the Jordanians. And in 1967, during the 1967 Six-Day War, the Israelis basically pushed the Jordanians out of that region and essentially took it over, which is where a lot of the issues come from, because now you have Palestinians who are more or less living um, in captivity, um, behind walls and behind bunkers, which I've seen with my own eyes. Um, now, again, there's reasons why those structures were built. But um, having Palestinians guide us and um, uh, Israeli Arabs guide us and Israeli Jews guide us, we really got a whole picture of sort of what was going on. Another really interesting thing is uh, we actually got to visit Palestine itself. Um, we went to Ramallah, we went to Bethlehem, I got to talk to Palestinians, um, you know, that were living living through this. And again, um, it's a unbelievably beautiful country. Um, you can almost, it's hard to even explain, but you can almost feel the history there. You know, when you're walking through the city of Jerusalem and knowing how many different people sort of pass through um, is really, really a remarkable uh, feeling. We went to Haifa, we went to Jerusalem. We went to the Golan Heights. We went to the border near the Gaza Strip and visited some of the Jewish communities that lived uh, uh, pretty close to where the separation wall is. And again, it was a very, very, very rewarding trip where you know I think we all learned quite a bit. I wanted to ask you a follow up on that because um, you know obviously you, you talked about everywhere that you traveled within the region, some of the things that you saw. Uh, we just had Sabrina Rodriguez on last week, the immigration reporter, political, talking about, you know, how the experience really changed her um, seeing the migrants and the issues that they're happening at the border. And as somebody who works in the media and knows the buzzwords and the coverage, it was very like, it's not like this over here. So what's a what's a takeaway that you would impart to the audience about what you saw that maybe they have a perception about the region right now that it's really not like that or something that actually is like the way it's being described. Yeah, I, I, I think that I always say that it's always better to see things with one's own, one, one's own eyes um, in order to really seek truth. Um, I, I can tell you from experience that, you know, when you watch the American media, regardless of which channel you watch, um, Palestinians are often um, portrayed very negatively. And I would argue really from both sides, whether they're portrayed as these sort of um, uh, terrorists, like every Palestinian is, is, is some kind of like rabid terrorist. And the flip side as well, that they are 
almost like the the danger of the single story. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but like the danger of like sort of painting everything um, as being tragic for Palestinians. Um, I can certainly attest to some of this, you know, when we went to Ramallah, the Palestinians that I met were some of the nicest people I met on the entire trip. Um, when these cities are often referred to as being kind of like refugee camps, there's actually cities with bustling industry and things sort of happening and people going to work and people raising their families. I can tell you that it was very ominous to look up at that separation wall. I remember going through the checkpoint and saying to myself, what would this be like if I saw this every day in my own home? I mean, you're talking about machine gun towers with the weapons pointed down into the city. Um, talking like amazing art that's been painted on both sides of the separation wall, in some cases, kind of like pro-Israel art, um, but most cases more like pro-Palestinian. Um, I also remember a few moments of walking through the city with our guide. And, I, you know, when I'm on trips like this, I tend to be like my wife would say, I'm, I'm typically like the papa bear kind of like, I'm sort of like the person looking out to make sure that everybody's safe and things like that. So a lot of times I kind of go off where I stand in the back and I can remember very clearly being alone and seeing, you know, some Palestinian children walking by and like, you know, they looked at me and it's almost like we had a conversation without really having a conversation. You know, they threw up the peace sign and I can just tell that they were trying to give me their experience in that one gesture, you know? Um, so I remember, you know, leaving, um, you know, that city and that region, um, on one hand, uh, very hopeful and very um, connected in a lot of ways to the people there, um, especially based on all the interactions that I had. Um, and, you know, feeling a lot of empathy and a lot of sympathy also given the circumstances that they're living in. Because, you know, one of the things that we have to remember here is, um, and, and you could probably make the same argument um, when we're thinking about the United States, like politically, you know, Hamas might be labeled a terrorist organization. And, and again, most Western nations will call them that, right? Um, but that doesn't mean every Palestinian is even affiliated with that group. In fact, most of the Palestinians I talked to didn't particularly care that much for Hamas because the way that they saw it is every time um, Hamas launches rockets at um, you know, Israeli citizens, it almost makes the situation even worse for them. Because ultimately, kind of, kind of back, getting back to one of your earlier questions about you know, the idea of um, essentially a two-state system, which is what the British wanted in the first place back all, you know, all the way back in 1917, um, the fear is if this cycle continues, which is uh, a protest happening um, in Israel somewhere, Hamas launching rockets, and then the Israelis, um, you know, launching these very sophisticated military operations. The fear amongst many historians and many people is that how can we ever get to a situation where there is a, there is multiple states? And that's very complex and very complicated. Most people kind of paint this as such a simple decision, and it's not. Yeah, you were talking earlier about the idea of, of a border and like where certain territories, you know, who really sort of runs that territory has shifted. You gave the example of Jerusalem earlier. Is is part of the situation that there is a sense of border fluidity, that both sides are contesting territories that historically there have been you know, documents and proclamations that say, you know, who owns what, but that there is a sort of an ongoing debate as to what historical doctrine are we still holding to and, you know, the element of religion obviously here. But is this really a matter of just two different perspectives on, you know, where the border lies between these two and the, between these two entities? 
Yeah, I would, I would give you two answers to that. So um, the first one being, absolutely. Um, what kicked off this entire military campaign, the really where this started, um, is something that has, that has been happening forever um, you know, in this region, um, especially going all the way back to 1947 and 1948 when Israel became a state, a recognized state. Um, so both sides basically claim that during the times in which, um, you know, Palestinians lived in Jerusalem um, or Israelis lived in Jerusalem, um, what both sides will essentially argue um, is that a city block or a neighborhood is theirs. So in this particular case, because the Israelis hold essentially the military advantage right now and really the political advantage as well, what they've been doing um, is they've basically been evicting um, Palestinian families from Jerusalem and even other parts of the nation. And what they're doing is essentially evicting them, claiming that back when, particularly with Jerusalem, back when Jordan had controlled Jerusalem back in the 60s, a lot of Jewish families um, were essentially displaced. So in a lot of cases, what the Israelis are basically saying is, well, because um, our people were displaced, we have a right back to those neighborhoods. And that was what set off this particular situation. Um, and it goes, it goes both ways as well, right? For a lot of Palestinians, their argument is, look, you know, you guys came here in the late 1800s. We've been living here literally since Muhammad. I mean, literally back in the middle of the 600 CE. Um, and then, of course, the Israelis go back with, well, according to the Bible, you know, this land was given to us. So it's this constant um, going back and forth through time to justify who should live where. So that has a lot to do with it. So, so to answer your question, yeah, like the, the borders and who is supposed to control what does have a lot to do with the situation. But the, I can also answer your question in another way. Um, the word fluidity, right? One of the most difficult things for Palestinians that live in this region, um, it's worse in Gaza that is, than it is in the West Bank, um, is the fact that they really can't move around. So if we look at Gaza first, you basically can't leave. Okay, so just ponder that for a second. Whether Israel is right or Hamas is right, the, the innocent people that live there, that are just trying to live, they, they can't leave, okay? Sometimes um, you can get special identification, like if you end up getting a job or something in Israel, um, or you have special clearance, sometimes you're allowed out. Um, but that's pretty rare um, in Gaza. If you look at the West Bank, the West Bank, and again, we don't probably don't have time to go into all the details, but the West Bank is divided up into A, B, and C sectors, and each of them have different rules. So in um, some of those areas in the West Bank, uh, people can move a little bit more freely. And in fact, the Palestinian Authority, their government, basically kind of calls the shots, right? But in other parts, um, it's much, much, much more strict. And this is one of the biggest criticisms of the way the Israelis are kind of managing the situation. Um, the biggest critics of this essentially call it apartheid, um, where whether the Israelis are doing it on purpose or not, and that's, again, another entire conversation. Um, the fact is, is that Palestinians are sort of herded into these areas and expected to live and ultimately not really question it. The other point that I would sort of raise too is that there are also Palestinians that live in Israel proper. So 
Um, they call themselves either Israeli Arabs or Arab Israelis. Um, they're not necessarily all Muslim. Uh, there are some Christians, um, you know, Christian Arabs that, that live in Israel, but they're essentially second and third class citizens. They don't necessarily have the same rights um, as uh, you know, the Jews do in Israel. They do have uh, political representation, but again, like um, if you look at the cities in Israel, the most um, impoverished places are the places where uh, Palestinians live. Um, so you definitely see a lot of inequality. Um, you know, in, in the region. Jared, um, you know, one thing that we cannot get around, unfortunately, with this issue, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, we mentioned it before you hopped on the program that we really try to remove emotion politics and keep it informational and educational. Um, but the U.S. and the U.S.'s involvement in this, um, we played at the top of the program, President Biden's comments uh, recently about it, that Israel has a right to defend themselves, but that he also hopes that this conflict will be resolved um, soon. So what what can, in, in your uh, opinion, having been to the region, knowing so much as you do uh, about the region, what what can the U.S. do here? I know the United Nations has tried and, and has forcefully made some statements about peace and unity. What can be done here from the United States' angle? And does it feel like the we know the foreign policy, at least from the media perspective, is slanted one way from the U.S.'s perspective. But like, what can the U.S. do here? It's a really, really hard question to answer. I'll do my best with this one. Um, well, why don't we start here? Um, I, I mentioned this a little while ago. You know, you have sort of this vicious cycle um, that, you know, happens in this region. Um, and if you want to think about what the U.S.'s role um, in this, again, if you sort of go back to the birth of Israel, um, the U.S. and Western nations have always tended to sort of support the Israelis, but they really started to support them um, after uh, the war in 1973, where the Israelis fought, um, fought off an invasion by Syria and fought off an invasion by Egypt. Um, this also coincides with really like there had been terrorist acts before that, but um, it's really the birth of terrorism because for a lot of um, uh, Arabic nations and uh, one could also argue Palestinians who, you know, looked at themselves as freedom fighters, right? trying to sort of fight against this oppressive state, what they sort of realized is, you know, militarily in terms of a conventional war, we really can't defeat the Israelis. Um, therefore, we're gonna resort to terrorist acts. So if you look at um, Israel in the 70s, starting with the Munich uh, Olympics, where, you know, the uh, Israeli Olympic team had been, um, you know, taken hostage and killed. Um, ultimately, there were, bombings at synagogues, there were bombings of buses, there were bombings um, really all over Israel. And that's really when the United States almost gave Israel sort of this carte blanche to kind of, uh, I'll use the a lot of president's words, the right to defend itself. So, you know, where you sort of get this cycle is that, you know, back then you have these terrorist acts and there were a lot of people in Israel um, that, essentially try to work towards some kind of ceasefire and some kind of um, sort of like de-escalation of the conflict, right? And what Israel sort of had to resort to, and this is where some of that stuff that we talked about earlier about the border walls sort of come in, um, what the Israelis had to do in order to stem these terrorist attacks is essentially stem who could come into the state of Israel. So whether you're talking about Gaza or whether you're talking about the West Bank, 
what they had to do is build these sort of security checkpoints. And by the way, like this is just their perspective. Like if you ask an Israeli, you know, person in the government, you know, they build these border walls, they build these checkpoints, and sure enough, the terrorist actions stop. And now what groups like Hamas have to resort to because they can't really get operatives into Israel itself is, you know, use these sort of rockets. Now, again, let's circle back. Where does the United States come in? So over, I would say, you know, the last 10 years or so, but more so um, right now, is you're actually starting to see in the United States a little bit more pushback against Israel for a variety of reasons. Even if you look at Joe Biden, who, you know, if you talk to a progressive, you know, Joe Biden is pretty moderate, you know, in terms of, you know, his policies and the way he thinks about things. Um, you know, Joe Biden, you know, kind of went the classic route of foreign policy, right, of American foreign policy. You know, he said, you know, the Israelis have the right to defend themselves. And as long as Hamas is going to launch rockets, you know, the Israelis have the right to fight back, you know. But look, there's also a pretty large part of the Democratic Party, you know, a lot of progressives, you know, um, from all over the United States that are really, uh, you know, pushing back against that. They're saying, look, you know, there is no other nation in the world that we give more foreign aid to, you know, billions of dollars every year. You know, part of the reason the Israelis have the Iron Dome is because of the fact that they get money from us. So for a lot of progressives, they argue that the way in which Israel conducts these military offensives, where whether they're intending it or not, they're killing children, um, you know, they're killing innocent people in addition to the people that they're trying to get. A lot of U.S. lawmakers are starting to push back and say, look, um, this isn't right. So, again, I don't know if I have a great answer uh, to the original question, but what I can say is as long as you have these kinds of military escalations, as long as from military point of view, Hamas is willing, they know that they can't defeat Israel militarily, yet they launch at this point 3,000 rockets at Israel. Until they eliminate that as a element of foreign policy, and Israel obviously as well, until they uh, are willing to kind of step back and not escalate things to the point where um, they are demolishing entire neighborhoods in Gaza, and ultimately saying that they have the right to do so, and that they don't really mind, uh, you know, that you're getting civilian casualties. Until there's some kind of resolution to that, it's going to be very, very difficult for things to change in that region. But I will give you a little bit of hope here. One of the most powerful moments that I found when I was in um, Israel was um, we went to a school to visit um, some children who went to basically uh, a school where um, all of the parents in this particular region um, opted to send their Jewish children uh, to schools with um, Arab-Israeli children. And when we talked to them, uh, I felt very hopeful because to them, because they're so young, because they don't have all of this sort of history and all these trigger points um, you know, from their lives, they just look at each other as people. And they laugh and they play outside and they play soccer. So I sort of was left feeling with a feeling that I, also, I, I often get here in the United States where it almost seems like young people, maybe they can do it better than we have, um, you know, our generation specifically. Um, maybe as people like that come into political office, there might be some kind of solution. But again, the flip side, um, Think about the United States. Imagine if, you know, during the American Civil War, imagine if the South actually did secede 
And imagine if both sides have militaries and there's a border, you know, you have to ask yourself, and I don't have an answer to this, by the way, you know, um, when and if the Palestinians get a state, if Hamas is still in charge, what's going to happen to that military footing? Is that going to go away? Um, will Hamas say to themselves, uh, we've achieved our goal and now we're going to deescalate? And, and the same thing would go for Israel, you know? Um, would Israel, Israel be willing to not launch these massive airstrikes in retaliation for a protest? or a rocket being fired. So again, I know that doesn't answer the question, but that's that's the murkiness of this region of the world. Jared, as a history teacher, you know, one thing we we strive to do on this show is to give avenues for people to further educate themselves on the topics that we present. What would be some recommendations you'd have for and I'll start with with books, but just like literature that people can read to to feel more knowledgeable on this topic, you'll be able to as you yourself today have done you know, present a pretty, you know, helpful middle ground to understand the origins of this conflict. And as you had just alluded to a moment ago, what the future of this conflict or maybe potentially its end may be. Sure. So, I mean, for me, um, it's all about curating news and it's all about reading books. You know, I'm kind of old school in that sense. I mean, I like podcasts, obviously, <laughs> I'm on this one. Um, but to me, like, I'll give you a few titles. Um, and there's something that I would argue connects all these titles together. I mean, I'm, by the way, I'm happy to uh, forward these in case you guys want to post this on social media. Um, so I think of authors like Neil Kaplan, um, who wrote the is- Israel-Palestine conflict contested histories. Um, I include this uh, text because it's very balanced. You know, you're going to get facts from sort of both sides uh, to inform the reader, and then the reader can kind of make their own mind up as to what they really think. Um, and all of the other books on this list, I would argue, kind of do the same thing. Um, uh, Rashid Khalidi, who is a professor um, at Columbia University, um, wrote a book called The Hundred Years War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance. Um, again, it's a great book um, for a variety of reasons. Um, because again, while I would argue that he's very much writing from a Palestinian perspective, he's very critical of Hamas. And he's very uh, critical of how a lot of um, political organizations um, in the region, he kind of asked the question, are they really serving the needs of these innocent Palestinian people who kind of got trapped in a lot of ways because of these wars that you know, have gone on? Um, and I have two other, author, uh, other authors um, from Israel. Um, Ari Shavit wrote My Promised Land, The Triumph and Tragedy of Israel. And there's another um, author named Benny Morris I mean, he wrote a book called 1948, A History of the First Arab-Israeli War. And again, um, these are what I would sort of argue to be sort of like, not necessarily revisionist historians, but sort of like more like new historians, um, who again are kind of critical of Israel, you know, where um, they, you know, they'll use phrases like, um, you know, Israel has the right to defend itself, but they're sort of very critical of, you know, again, should Israel have a foreign policy that's so similar to uh, their foreign policy in 1948 and even beyond where, uh, you know, Israel always felt as a state that uh, their Arabic neighbors were basically trying to destroy them and push them into the sea. And what, what these historians do and what a lot of historians do nowadays is they sort of question that. They sort of say, is that the right foreign policy to have given where Israel stands in the world now? Right. 
And if you want to take that a bit further, because there's always sort of pushback, you know, for the Israelis, you know, a lot of times you'll hear, especially older Israelis say never again, because the fact is from the Israeli perspective, especially from Israeli hawks who defend these military operations, they would argue, look, you know, for the last 2000 years, we've taken that approach and we almost literally got wiped out, meaning as a people. So for a lot of Israelis, it's very hard to backtrack from that concept. So the other recommendation I would have um, in addition to books would be media. And what I've been tending to uh, do to really understand on this conflict is I try to go to as many sources from both sides as possible. So for example, looking at Al Jazeera, looking at the Jerusalem Post, and again, guys, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it's just like, you know, looking at Fox and looking at CNN, it almost feels like the people are talking about two different things on two different planets. So for your listeners and really for anybody that wants to be a student of history and really sort of understand things and not be drawn into almost like this tribal sense that, you know, if you live in the United States, if you're a Democrat or you're a progressive or you're a conservative or you're a Republican, almost like just simply believing what they believe because of herd mentality. I think looking at all those media sources and reading as much as one can, you can try to really get a more balanced look at the region and then make the decision for yourself as to what you really think. Jared, it's really well said. Uh, one of the things we preach here, obviously, and that people I think need to learn, uh, especially for myself, who's worked you know, at, at some of these news outlets, uh, is news judgment and, and being able to decipher what is a real source, what isn't a real source. I, I, I echo that about the Al Jazeera stuff and, and checking out all the work there. Uh, Sky News as well does great. Reuters uh, does fantastic work about everything in the region. Um, Jared Fishman, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Let me tell you something. Uh, this is just on a personal note. Um, your students are very lucky, my friend. You are extremely knowledgeable about this. Um, I, I can't speak for Nick, but actually I will speak for Nick. Um, you have been fantastic today and we really appreciate you educating us more about not only the region, the conflict, giving us, you know, the personal sides of what you saw over there firsthand. So thank you so much for coming on the program. Really appreciate it. Stay safe. Thanks. And I really appreciate you guys having me on. All right. That was history teacher, uh, Jared Fishman at the Hackley school up in Westchester. It does a fantastic job, man. I mean, you know, folks, look, I, I, I can't even play as if I, I know some of the conflict, at least over th the last 60, 70 years, like Jared got into of what happened in the 40s, you know, the, the kidnapping in Munich. There's so many historical events around this, um, like Jared mentioned of some of those texts, um, like I mentioned towards the end. Uh, I think Al Jazeera, Sky News, Reuters do a great job of covering this. So check out all of that information about everything that's going on in the region, um, you know, the U.S.'s involvement in this and, and what, you know, President Biden's doing. I would look at it from those media outlet lenses. But uh, Nick, what you, would you think of not only Jared and the historical context that he put in terms of framing a lot of what's happening, what led to this recent conflict, but like the issue at hand, man, it's 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 a heavy one, man. We talked about it at the top, that war correspondent that did not want to come on. He said it's a live grenade that I don't want to live with. What what do you make of the overall topic? Oh, yeah, I understand where that where that person's coming from. Um, you know, what was yeah, Mike, I feel like I say this every week, but this this episode really feels like one of our best ones. 
Um, this feels like required listening. <laughs> I think I'm very tempted to going forward, you know, when this conversation comes up either between groups of our friends or, you know, different spaces I'm in through social media and stuff like this feels like a definitive text to put in front of people because I think Jared does a phenomenal job of really just taking us through historically, you know, how we arrive at this place. And regardless of what side of the argument you present, and I thought Jared did a great job of giving us some needed perspective of what is really driving the the thought process you know, for, for either side of this conflict. It feels definitive to me. At the very end, he gave us a syllabus, man. You know, to, to for you all listeners, listen to the show at the very end. Start, you know, start busting out, you know, find out your local bookstore, Amazon, wherever, and start looking at these texts because here's a guy who knows what he's talking about telling you. The best way to really cut through the um, the hot takery that's going on right now is to do some serious reading. So I would say I think he, he did a phenomenal job. And where I feel now is I feel a little more level-headed about this. Like I, I understand what I understand a little bit more historically how we've arrived at this place, but more importantly, I understand where both sides are coming from. So I don't feel as tied emotionally to it. I mean, it's crazy to say that because we're talking about people, people dying, but I mean, and I, and I, I, I'm respectful of it, but at the same time, I'm more understanding of what is driving both sides and, and just ever more hopeful for how, you know, what reasonable conclusion we can have, which is not going to be anytime soon. It may not even be in, in our lifetimes, Mike, but, but where this could proceed to, um, to getting to a better place. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole man. You got to pray for peace in the region. I think about that video you sent me of the Palestinian girl. If you haven't seen it on Twitter, um, I mean, you'll probably see it right now as, it, as I have it airing uh, in this YouTube portion. But uh, it's very moving of what that little girl said, a 10 year old who, you know, um, her house was destroyed as she was playing outside. Um, it's very moving. And I think that's the piece that's probably lost in all this is the people that live in the region, like Jared said, they can't go anywhere. Um, the ones that have fears of, of getting on public transportation because of fear of an extremist, you know, uh, strapping themselves with a bomb and blowing up. And we don't live in that type of environment, you know, here domestically in the U.S. And, you know, one of the things Jared told us off air was a lot of these politicians, you know, and I know Ted Cruz has alluded to this, that he's going to travel to the region. But, you know, Jared uh, off air told us, you know, some of these politicians said you should actually head to the region to see what he saw and to see the way people were living day to day and what gave him hope, but also what was fearful, you know, like the scare that they had where he had to show his students a bomb shelter. Um, you know, like there's things like that that I think are, are really lost. Those those intricate stories of people that are living there on the ground day to day that are going through this. And we just see, you know, uh, one nation and one that wants to be a nation. Um, just kind of going back and forth and then the Western world kind of chiming in and United Nations at some point chiming in. And that's not really, you know, some of that is not helping, you know, and it's so polarizing here domestically. It's like we need to actually uh, get at the root of this. But I, I love that Jared gave so much context around all the conflicts that have happened in the region and, and what led to this recent one. So we thank him so much for coming on the program. Uh, as for our show, always, folks. You know, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, YouTube, uh, audio platforms, Nick's pointing down to smash the subscribe button on YouTube, but the audio platforms, you know, by now, Apple, Spotify, Google, check us out, leave us a review and comment, please. If you want to continue the conversation with us about this topic or other topics that you've heard on the program, email us at can we please talk podcast at yahoo.com. Check us out on IG and TikTok at can we please talk podcast 
on Twitter at Can We Please Talk and check out our Patreon portion where we'll have some bonus clips from this episode and more uh, exclusive content that lives on there. If you have a recommendation for a show topic, you want to buy some show merchandise with Nick and I's face on it, uh, head over to Patreon, type in at Can We Please Talk Podcast as Nick makes the, oh, really? Are we selling that now? Okay. Oh, we're? <laughs> yeah, that's right. As always, everybody, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saberi. Thank you so much for tuning in, listening. We really appreciate it and have a good one. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 